I hate the Sky Dome and the CN Tower too I hate Nathan Phillips Square and the Ontario Zoo The rent's too high, the air's unclean The beaches are dirty and the people are mean Coming to you from the West Coast, this is Politicos. Today is March 8th, 2018, and this is episode 76. Politicos is your weekly recap of politics news with a West Coast perspective. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe and leave a review wherever you found us. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter, where we're at Politicos Pod, and support the show at patreon.com slash politicos. I'm Scott Blameboom. And I'm Ian Bushfield. Today we're going to be talking about what's been going on in Ontario politics for a bit of a change, and we'll have the host of TVO's The Agenda on Politics podcast, John McGrath, and we'll be talking about what actually BC Today is with Shannon Waters, who covers the BC Legislature, and she'll join us for quick takes. We also have to, of course, thank our premier sponsors, Lindsay Ted and Blake Hodson, for helping make the show possible. Politicoast is in partnership with BC Today, BC's brand new daily newsletter dedicated exclusively to BC politics. Sign up for a free trial to have unique coverage of the BC legislature delivered to your inbox every morning. Listeners to Politicoast receive 25% off your subscription when you enter the offer code Politicoast. For your free two-week trial of the newsletter, go to BritishColumbiaToday.ca. The other thing I've been putting together over the past week, roughly, is an ongoing list of who is running or put their name forward for the various political party nominations here in the city of Vancouver. I have a spreadsheet with about 35 odd names so far, mostly people seeking the NPA nomination for council like you, (laughs) but also some people running for one city, some people running for school board and parks board. And I even actually emailed all of the current sitting parks board and school board trustees and commissioners to see if they're lining up again. And most of them go, I don't know, it's like months away because only councillors who are seeing a power vacuum are really interested in it. Potential councillors are really interested in it right now. I think it's more than just seeing a power vacuum. So that is easiest to find in the show notes here or on my Twitter. It's my new pinned tweet. Anyone can view it. I've It's locked, so only I can edit it right now. But hopefully that will develop over the coming weeks and months as a useful resource. People on Twitter have seemed to like it. We have on the line John Michael McGrath from TVO's The Agenda on Politics podcast. Welcome to Politicoast. Thank you so much for having me. John, why don't you take a second to introduce yourself and your podcast for people who might not know what it is? Sure. So uh, TVO is the provincial public broadcaster here in Ontario, and I write for the website and have also started uh, hosting a uh, podcast uh, really focused on the provincial election. Uh, It's the Agenda on Politics. Um, And uh, we've been going since... Oh, Lord, I've actually lost track now. Uh, We've been going since uh, late last year, since October, I believe. And then things started going crazy in January, and we've started to do a bit more and a bit more quickly than we expected to. (laughs) I think everyone here already knows that craziness you're referring to, but for the three people who maybe don't, do you walk us through what's happened? Sure. As best and as quickly as I can. Um, The context, of course, is that uh, Ontario is heading to a uh, general election on June 7th, and the current Liberal government here is 
pretty consistently unpopular, and the conservatives have, the progressive conservative party here has pretty consistently led in the polls. And at the end of January, this bombshell dropped that Patrick Brown was accused by a report on CTV News uh, of uh, sexual misconduct, of getting young women drunk and uh, uh, trying to force himself on them. That, you know, Brown has now sued CTV, claiming that key elements of their story were inaccurate. The immediate impact was within hours he resigned as leader of the Progressive Conservative Party. The party then, uh, a few days later, decided to have a leadership race to replace him. That wasn't immediately clear that that's what they would do. There was some talk that they might pick an interim leader to take the party into the general election. The leadership race started very early on with uh, Doug Ford, the brother of the late Toronto Mayor Rob Ford, uh, announcing his candidacy, and then he was quickly followed by uh, Christine Elliott, uh, who was a a former MPP, uh, that's right, that's a member of provincial parliament. Christine Elliott was followed by uh, Carolyn Mulroney. And Tanya Granick Allen, uh, a activist who's very uh, motivated to oppose the uh, now three-year-old sex ed curriculum here in Ontario, uh, and then <laughs> Patrick Brown got back in uh, to politics, got into the leadership race, um, stayed in the race for ten days, about, and then saying that the. Uh, harassment that his family was facing was too much, got back out of the race. So we are now uh, looking at Saturday afternoon. We will learn who the winner of the leadership race is, except as we speak, uh, they have just announced that uh, some of the candidates are seeking an injunction against the Progressive Conservative Party, trying to force a delay on this uh, uh, final vote, saying that not enough of the party members have gotten their uh, their chance to vote. There's been a whole logistical problem of getting the online vote to work. And so, technically speaking, I don't know where I'm going to be on Saturday. <laughs> I was planning to be uh, at the, the convention hall, so to speak, uh, waiting to, to hear who the next leader of the, the PC party would be. But it's possible that that plan is going to have to change. Yeah, I was thinking about the timing when we were scheduling this. Even this morning, I was like, oh, shit, the voting will close right as I basically get this episode out onto the Internet. And then we'll hear the results on Saturday. But your news about this uh, possible injunction really makes everything a bit more complicated. (laughs) For all of us, yes. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, so which campaigns are pushing for this injunction? So far, the the Doug Ford campaign has, I think, been most closely associated with it. Christine Elliott is the only candidate who has not um, tried to get the party to delay the final um, uh, the, the the final announcement. Uh, Mulroney, Ford, and uh, Granick Allen all. Uh, wrote letters basically saying that given the the problems with the the online voting that they wanted a uh, at least a one week delay 
uh, Christian Elliott, who probably not coincidentally is, I think, widely perceived as being the front runner, um, is not calling for any kind of delay. Uh, at the moment, I, I couldn't tell you if all three of the sort of, uh, if, I don't know if you want to call them dissidents or whatever, uh, I, I couldn't tell you that all three are connected to this court injunction case. That's going to be heard in a Toronto courtroom tomorrow morning. Uh, but I, I, I think the um, the Ford campaign is is closest to it. So assuming this injunction doesn't happen, assume for the sake of just this recording, I guess, <laughs> that everything goes to plan, everything goes normally. You mentioned that Christine Elliott is perceived to be the front runner. Maybe you could walk us through, since we won't know who wins while we're recording, but what would be the path for her or some of the other candidates to win? So uh, I guess the first thing I'll just say is that uh, I think it's very likely that this request for an injunction is is going to be tossed. Uh, I'm not an elections law expert, but you would have to, as I understand it, you would have to prove uh, some you know, malicious intent. And the only thing that is obvious from the news reporting is that it's, it's like a difficult thing to try and organize a leadership race within six weeks and get the voting. You know, know, it's, it's, things have gone wrong, but they're going to have a hard time proving corruption or anything like that. Um, as to the, the, the victor and how this is all going to be counted, this is the Tories are using a ranked ballot. So it's going to be, uh, you know, list your four choices and the, the the received wisdom at the moment, I think, is that Christine Elliott is the most likely to win because she has the most sort of second vote growth potential. So if you're a Doug Ford fan, you are, uh, you know, he's, he's your first choice and it's going to be hard to imagine, you know, who your second choice would be. Uh, if Same thing with Tanya Granik-Allen. Uh, Carolyn Mulroney has, uh, I think, struggled in this campaign. She has not. Uh, she's done better, I think, in the in the final leg of the campaign, but it took a, a long time to get going. And so, I think the most likely scenario we we will see uh, on Saturday, and obviously, Lord knows, you know, it's been it's been a weird first part of the year. But I think the most likely scenario is. Christine Elliott and Doug Ford leading the pack on the first ballot, but Christine Elliott's uh, going to grow more uh, on a second or third ballot than Doug Ford will. And some of the polling, and obviously polling is really dicey in these kinds of races, uh, but some of that polling bears out that, um, for example, you know, the vast majority of Caroline Mulroney's supporters list their second choice as Christine Elliott, and you add the two of them together and Christine Elliott crosses the finish line with more than 50%. So she's obviously leading, but what are the other candidates' paths to victory on this? Is there a chance we could have Doug Ford leading the uh, PCs? There is a chance. Um, I I am not ruling out the possibility of a, a Doug Ford uh, leadership. I don't think it's the most likely, but... You could see a scenario where if he had a very, very strong first ballot showing, uh, then he could attract the support of Tanya Granik allens supporters. She has been uh, not a, a um, 
a dominant figure in this race, let me put it that way. I, I think everybody expects her to come in fourth of four candidates. But if Doug Ford has a strong enough first ballot showing and she does very well, you could hypothetically see a scenario where uh, where Doug ends up on top. Um, I am on the record at TVO as, as having said I don't think Doug Ford is going to make a terribly good leadership candidate for the Tories, and I'm basing that in part on my experience uh, reporting from Toronto City Hall when he was a councillor and uh, his, his, mayor was, or, sorry, his brother was mayor. So yeah, Doug's been, I've noticed, taking a lot of those social conservative positions. He's made some weird statement or some statements about <laughs> opening the abortion debate and things like that. And that I imagine is a play to Alan's very social conservative constituency. She's, I take it the Brad Tross style, you know, get the, get the people who feel really left out by most of mainstream Canadian politics, I guess, because right. it's moved well beyond those questions for a while, but they want to rehash them, I guess. Yeah, so we've had an issue in this province since about, well, if you go back far enough, you I think started at 2011, where we had a, we had a wildly outdated uh, sex ed curriculum in provincial schools that had last been updated in 1999. And the liberal government that was then a different premier, it was Dalton McGuinty, uh, introduced the new curriculum. And then in the face of really severe uh, outcry from religious conservatives, uh, shelved it. Uh, they were running for re-election. They didn't want this issue on their plate. And they put it away and they left it in a drawer for about four years. And then a new premier, Kathleen Wynne, wins a majority government. And one of the first things she did was bring that curriculum back. And we heard the exact same outcry. And I have to say, I really thought this would not still be an issue today in 2018, uh, both for the, the content of the curriculum, which, as I say, you know, it was we desperately needed an update and it's kind of like <laughs> topics in sex ed for, you know, high school kids have changed a bit since 1999 <laughs> when I was in high school. Um, and uh, I also just thought on, on the politics that, you know, this was going to be a dead issue three years later. Uh, it has turned out not to be, uh, as we say, uh, Tanya Granick Allen has been a, a very vocal opponent to this and wants to see the, uh, the, 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 the curriculum uh, scrapped. She uh, believes that the the curriculum has led to you know school children being taught about anal sex, and she used those words a lot in the debate that we hosted at TVO amongst the four leadership candidates. And we're pretty sure that's the most mentions uh, of uh, anal sex that has ever appeared on TVO. But it's just been a a, a real surprise to see that it still has this this uh, intensity uh, among. Uh, PC voters, not least because Patrick Brown had basically totally abandoned it. He had uh, initially won the leadership race uh, for his party as a uh, social conservative. He certainly seemed uh, open to the concerns of these conservative parents who were opposed to the curriculum. And then uh, more than a year ago now, uh, very publicly sort of abandoned the the fight uh, left a lot of social conservatives hanging, and they've never forgiven him for that. So that's also part of the political context to all this. Uh, while we're on the topic of Patrick Brown, yeah, where do you see his supporters going on this? 
Who are they going to bat? The only candidate who hasn't said something particularly nasty about Patrick Brown is Christine Elliott, I think. Um, Carolyn Mulroney called for him to leave the race before he did and, and was very explicit about saying that, you know, he would at best would be a distraction and at worst was using his, uh, using the leadership race to, to try and, you know, clear his name. Um, Tanya Granick Allen, uh, was very, uh, you know, was was very much not a fan of Patrick Brown, and then accused uh, him and the people around him of, of uh, corrupting the party. Uh, Christine Elliott didn't take the bait when uh, Carolyn Mulroney called on all of the other candidates to to sort of have a united front against Brown. So, uh, and you've seen some of Brown's public supporters uh, have turned towards Christine Elliott, um, and I'm thinking here of uh, one MPP uh, who supported Brown, uh, Ross Romano, uh, has thrown his support behind Christine Elliott. Uh, another uh, federal MP, uh, Alex Nuttall, uh, who is a, a friend of Brown's and represents the same sort of area, uh, he has also thrown his support behind Elliott. The, the one... Um, uh, exception to that, the, the, the one prominent exception to that is the other uh, provincial MPP who had supported Brown was uh, Toby Barrett, who has supported, has thrown his support to Doug Ford. So I would expect most of those Brown supporters who, you know, they still exist, they're still party members, they still want their voices to be heard. Uh, I suspect most of them are going to line up behind Christine Elliott. But there will be some non-trivial number who go to Doug Ford. And I think the dividing line is going to be between the people who think of themselves as sort of institutional party supporters versus people who are angry at seeing uh, Patrick Brown taken out in what some of his supporters are still referring to as a coup or an inside job. So one of the things Patrick Brown did, I think, controversially well, besides the sexual misconduct allegations, yeah. was he tried to position the PCs on this carbon tax issue. And yes. he actually brought it up for the progressive conservatives. And I know that caused some rifts. How is that debate coming about in this leadership contest? Well, so this has always been unpopular among Tories. The when Brown made the announcement that he intended to commit the party to a carbon tax, even though he you know, promised it would be revenue neutral and that uh, all of the, the money that was collected would go back to taxpayers, either directly or in the form of tax cuts, uh, he was booed at his convention. Uh, there, there were voices, you know, there were certainly activists in the room who were, were really shocked. And some of the party have clearly never accepted it because all four leadership candidates uh, have signed a pledge from the Canadian Taxpayers Federation saying that they will not introduce a carbon tax in Ontario and will oppose the federal uh, carbon price backstop. So this has been, uh, you know, if you're somebody who was looking for, uh, you know, a, a reasonable climate change policy uh, from the party that may very well be that you know the, the the government of Ontario after the election. This has been kind of a dispiriting time, and I've spoken to conservatives who uh, are obviously the minority in their party, but there are you know certainly conservatives who are looking for a sensible climate policy, 
and uh yeah they're just it's 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 been uh depressing for them um they the the political side of this uh in the general election is that uh the tories can't win uh an election in ontario on their own base uh and they've they they ought to know this by now. They've they've lost uh you know quite a few elections now in a row, uh, and consistently one of the things that they get told you know after every election is you know that they they went too far right and they scared moderate voters, and you know at TVO we ran uh, something last week uh, with some polling that was commissioned from Canadians for Clean Prosperity that uh, showed the the moderate voters who are looking at the conservatives but haven't yet committed to them are really looking for a uh, a policy on climate change and i don't think that's because uh, a huge number of voters are really deeply committed environmentalists but i think people are using that as a signal of how serious to take uh, a party that wants to form government so how are the candidates proposing to address climate change or are they just trying to ignore the issue altogether <laughs> um it depends um doug ford has basically not proposed any kind of um climate change policy he has a, a bumper sticker line about how instead of cap and trade he's going to cap taxes and trade kathleen win um <laughs> the christine elliott has said that you know, she wants to propose a, a serious climate change policy, but doesn't believe that Ontario needs a carbon price right now. Uh, Tanya Granik Allen has railed against wind turbines, which uh, are deeply unpopular in uh, the part of the province that uh, she's from or where she lives in uh, uh, Simcoe County. Um, she has proposed simply ripping them out of the ground and, uh, you know, canceling their uh, contracts, their energy contracts. Um, and I, I, I'm at a loss. I, I, Carolyn Mulroney may have proposed something, and I'm just uh, uh, I, I'm, I don't have that at my fingertips. But uh, I think it's fair to say that the none of the four remaining candidates have really proposed anything as substantial as what they've abandoned. Uh, the part of what was called the People's Guarantee, which was the, the campaign platform that Patrick Brown presented to the public, uh, I guess, like two months before he resigned, had a very specific uh, costed uh, budget uh, that included revenues from, a, uh, from, from the federal carbon tax that were then going to be put towards tax cuts and uh, some improved services for things like mental health spending. And, you know, the, the, obviously, the Liberals and the New Democrats had their criticisms of that uh, platform as a political document, but it was at least a, a relatively specific sort of, we're going to take in money here and we're going to spend it there kind of document. And nobody has presented anything remotely comparable uh, among the, the leadership campaigns, which, I mean, I, I suppose fair enough. It's been like six weeks and it's hard to develop uh, a policy comparable to that with the the time frame they've been given. Circling back to Patrick Brown, like you mentioned, he was gone, then he was back, and (laughs) then he was gone again. The party seems, and they've removed him from caucus, 
will is this the end of Patrick Brown or do we expect him to come back and resurface at some point? Like what's next for <laughs> him? Do we know? Uh well, I don't think anybody knows anything. Uh, I, I'm not sure what I know. Um, <laughs> I, I don't think this is the last we have seen of Patrick Brown. Uh, the last thing I had heard, he was still uh, intending to run for his seat uh, in, uh, around Barry. He hasn't been seen at Queen's Park. Technically, he's still an MPP. He still has a seat in the legislature. He hasn't been there uh, as far as anybody's been able to, to spot him, like during question period, for example, uh, the the House is uh, uh, not sitting next week, so maybe he'll be back after that. I don't know. He is not, as far as I can tell, uh, he's, he's not terribly popular <laughs> uh, <laughs> among the party. There are still supporters there. Maybe if he wins a seat in the next election, the conservatives might find it in the, you know, the next leader might find it in their heart to let him sit with the caucus again. But that, um, uh, but I just don't know. It's, it's such a, a, an odd state that we're in. If Christine Elliott, you know, is the next leader and if she wins the next election, it, yeah, it's possible. Uh, but I, I, I like, I, I don't think anybody could tell you with any certainty what's what's going on right now. But on the other hand, you know, I haven't looked at Twitter while we've been recording this, so right. it's entirely possible I'm already out of date. <laughs> Are the PCs planning to run a candidate against against him? You know or will what? that kind of depend on the leader? Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I don't think that any candidate has been named against him. He, The last I heard, he was still the... He, he still had the party's nomination, but the interim leader, Vic Fideli, had said that he didn't have the confidence of the, the party leadership. So this is going to be the kind of thing that is going to be decided by the, the new leader once they're in place, maybe on Saturday. <laughs> uh, the one person we haven't talked about much tonight is Carolyn Maroney. Yeah. Um, she seems to have been a bit of a disappointment and underwhelmed in terms of what the expectations were. Uh, so what's been happening there? She's raised a lot of money, but that doesn't seem to be translated into momentum at all. Yeah, where's Ben or Brian's charm? <laughs> um, yeah, I would say it's it's fair to say that she has not um, she has not she has not lived up to the expectations that some people had of her when this all started. She hasn't been uh, really uh, energetic campaigner, I guess I would say. She hasn't. Uh, she didn't, I think, blow people away in either of the two debates uh, that have been held. Uh, she has raised a ton of money. She's raised the most money of any of the four candidates, but that hasn't uh, that hasn't translated into any kind of real groundswell of support. The last week has been more interesting. The last week she has been more uh, prominent in the race, and I think she's been sort of. Uh, She's been getting her face out there. Pardon me. She's been getting her face out there more, and she's been, yeah, she's just been been more of a factor in the race. But like the voting already started, I, I don't know whether that's going to translate into uh, an actual uh, movement at uh, at the the ballots. Um, she's not going to come in last, <laughs> which is you know uh, a small mercy. But I think it's it's very much going to be between. 
uh, Elliot and Doug Ford. The good news for Mulroney is that she, while she, I, I don't expect her to be the victor on Saturday, she hasn't done herself any any harm. She hasn't she hasn't hurt herself or the party, and so she was already very likely on a fast track to a cabinet seat in a potential progressive conservative government and provided that she comes out after the leadership vote and is the good soldier and pledges to support the leader and does all the things you are supposed to do uh there's no reason to think that she can't have uh, another run at uh, a party leadership uh at some point in the future if that's what she wants so we've kept you almost half an hour. I figure the last thing I really want to ask about is looking ahead. We haven't talked about, well, we've mentioned that Kathleen Wynne is deeply unpopular. And yep. it seems like once again, she's Canada's least popular premier. Yes. Do the liberals have any path to holding on? And the other side of the coin is Andrea Horvath's NDP, who've been kind of maybe just waiting this out. Is it their chance to be like, throw out both of these bums? <laughs> so I'm not sure which order to take that in. The One of the things that's interesting this week has been the announcement from the finance minister that uh, after years of getting the provincial budgets back to balance and having presented a balanced budget last year, uh, this year's budget on March 28th, they've said, will not be balanced, that will there be a deficit of less than 1% of GDP. So that's sort of a $8 billion or less deficit. And that could play a bunch of different ways. And I, I think the way the liberals really hope that it plays is the way that benefited Justin Trudeau in 2015, where the deficit became, I guess, a signifier of a more sort of ambitious progressive plan that we weren't going to let progressive policy be shackled by deficit mania. Right. Um, the problem there is that it also, I think, you know, the, the NDP have also been watching what's been happening. The NDP have also been thinking about what they're going to do for their platform, uh, which we expect later in the spring. And if, the Conservatives were already committed to a budget, even when, or sorry, a budget deficit, even when they had the carbon tax in their plan. And now, if they don't, that's going to be a larger deficit. The Liberals are saying they will run a deficit. And is it possible that the NDP will benefit when neither of the other more dominant parties can sort of beat them around the head by saying that they're fiscally irresponsible because everybody's basically committed to deficit spending? I, I think there's a plausible scenario there where the NDP come out looking competitive, at least. You know, Andrea Horvath remains the most popular of uh, the party leaders. Oh, that was true under Patrick Brown. Uh, it is, I think, uh, likely to be true uh, under most of the, the potential uh, leadership candidates for the Tories. Although Christine Elliott has a, a great deal of respect uh, among sort of Tory, not just Tories, but Tories and Liberal voters. Um, as for a step, for, uh, a path forward for the Liberals, their only real hope is 
a real surge in youth voting where that's sort of the the, the last demographic that uh, in all the polling still shows a uh, a pretty substantial uh, favorability for uh, the liberals generally and for Kathleen Wynne individually. She is, uh, you know, as we said, she's not individually terribly popular, but uh, there are groups in the province who still have uh, an enormous uh, respect and affection for her individually. Um, if they can get the kind of youth turnout, <clears throat> pardon me, if they, if they can get the kind of youth turnout that uh, Justin Trudeau saw in 2015, then potentially they could make this into a really competitive race again. But they have been so far back in the polls for so long that it is really difficult to see the province as a whole changing its mind uh, on the Liberals. They are, depending on which poll you look at, they are consistently 15 to some cases 20 points behind the Conservatives. You've got the NDP and the Liberals struggling to, you know, they're effectively tied for second and third, you know. Um, anything can happen. Elections matter. Campaigns matter. Uh, the last six weeks have shown how true that is. But there's no evidence that I'm seeing yet to suggest that the the Liberals are about to get back into contention. Uh, when that changes, I will <laughs> reevaluate my priors. <laughs> uh, finally, tell us about your show and where people can find it. Yeah, uh, we are uh, available on all the usual places, iTunes and Google Play. Uh, the uh, title of the show is uh, The Agenda on Politics with John Michael McGrath. Uh, I did not demand that my name be in the title, but it's there anyway. Um, and yeah, we, we do a weekly Thursday publication. The most recent podcast, we had a uh, Toronto conservative uh, lawyer named uh, Rocco Achampong, who uh, he was a candidate for the Tories in 2012, and he uh, speaks about what he thinks the party needs to do with a new leader to uh, really address the party's sort of historic uh, problem winning votes in Toronto. We also will have uh, next week, we're hoping to have uh, Mark Cameron on. I mentioned the uh, Canadians for Clean Prosperity. Uh, I want to have him on to talk about uh, how uh, dispiriting or not this has been to watch the, uh, the the leadership race unfold from the perspective of a guy who is uh, you know, a, a self-described conservative who believes in uh, carbon pricing and, and uh, specifically a revenue-neutral uh, carbon tax. And... Uh, what it's been like for him to watch four candidates uh, disavow his preferred policies. So uh, looking forward to that one. Well, thanks for taking the time to speak to us. I know it's late there. Ah, thank you so much. Thank you. Well, we're sitting down over Skype with Shannon Waters. Uh, Shannon covers the BC legislature for BC Today. Uh, why don't you introduce yourself? Um, hi, I'm Shannon Waters. I'm a legislative reporter, member of the press gallery here in Victoria, and I write BC Today, which is kind of, I guess, a daily report on pretty much everything that goes on in and around the BC legislature that influences politics in BC. We've been talking a lot about Alberta lately. Um, Yes, so we just do a kind of comprehensive view of politics here in beautiful British Columbia. Before you landed this gig, that was in November, I think, what was your background and how did you end up in Victoria writing an email newsletter? 
Well, I actually grew up here in Victoria, so it, it was a coming home for me. Um, I was a radio journalist previous to this. I was the news director for Vista Radio Station up in Prince George, um, which I really loved. Radio was sort of the thing that I fell in love with when I went and got a journalism diploma. And I do miss it at times, but when I saw the job posting for BC Today, everything that I read in it just made me really excited to put an application together. Um, and then when, uh, when Allison said she wanted to hire me, I packed up my life in about two and a half weeks and moved back to Victoria. We actually started in September, so I met with Allison about two days before the session started, which I believe was on either a Thursday or a Friday. Uh, my first day covering the BC legislature was the day of the throne speech, the NDP government's first throne speech, and... Um, then I just kind of went into it from there. We did the budget lockup the following week, and I just kind of learned um, to do what I do on the fly a little bit, informed by, you know, sort of a lifelong interest in, in politics. Uh, so what is BC Today? Uh, we kind of touched on it a bit, but uh, do you expand on it? Yeah, so BC Today, we publish Monday to Friday. Um, our subscribers get an email in their inbox in the early hours of each day. And it's a look both at what is likely to happen in the house on any given day, um, as well as if it's a day that the House is sitting, sort of a recap of the nuts and bolts of the legislative procedures. So I cover all the bills that get introduced, what stage they're at, uh, any amendments that are being made, any sort of interesting objections from the opposition or... Um, you know, discussion that happens around, say, the premise of a bill or a specific um, item within it. And then I also cover the various announcements that the government makes. We often, the press gallery often speaks with the premier once a week. Um, we talk to various ministers when they, they make announcements. And whenever sort of interesting things happen in the House, um, we'll often approach them in the hallways to get uh, sort of a more detailed take on whatever it is that's going on. Um, so I cover all of that. Uh, we do the lobby registry once a week, which is kind of a look at who wants to talk to the government about whatever issue. We had the Canadian Association of Petroleum Producers register a raft of lobbyists last week. Um yeah, I, I catalog events. Um, we do a topics of conversation section, which is sort of anything that's even tangentially related to BC or sometimes even federal politics. Um, yeah, so it's both a, a detailed look at what's going on in the house and then sort of everything that influences or is involved in BC politics, which I really love putting together. Yeah, I've really enjoyed reading it. And that's why I reached out to Allison to see how we could partner and work together. And hence why there's now this partnership that we disclaim at the start of every show. And we try and promote the newsletter and Allison kindly gives us free copies so that <laughs> we're well informed. Who is basically who are you going after? And how successful has that been? 
Well, it's it's still kind of a work in progress. I honestly, I'm not very good at sort of marketing and sales. And I told Allison that up front. So she handles a lot of the sort of trying to, um, to get more subscribers. Um, I focus on trying to make the content as good as it can possibly be so that we have, you know, a quality product that people will want to read. But it is, it is, I guess our target audience would be sort of people who are really interested in the nuts and bolts of, of a provincial legislator. So business owners who want to know how the government is going to approach a given issue. Um, I know that some of our subscribers are members of the public service. So it's kind of insiders who are looking at, you know, the way in which we are cataloging what's going on in the legislature. Um, let me see who else. Uh, various like um, nonprofit organizations and say industry associations who, you know, anybody who kind of has a stake really in the legislation that the government might introduce or um, is, is interested in the way sort of politics are functioning within BC at this point in time. I know we have some interest outside of the province. Um, I suspect that um, there may be uh, some interest in Alberta these days, given the way <laughs> things are going between BC and Alberta. That took up a large chunk of my afternoon today. Um so yeah, it's kind of, it's definitely high, sort of high level, and I do get quite technical, and I do go into, you know, policy details and stuff like that. Um, so maybe, you know, just your average uh, person wouldn't be all that interested in it. Um, but I'm one of those people who really believes that politics does influence basically every aspect of everybody's lives. And so I would say that in a way, BC Today is for everyone, as long as they don't think politics is boring, which I do not. So, How has it been one of the newer faces in Victoria, uh, along with a friend of the show, Justin McElroy, uh, has the old guard been welcoming? Yes, everybody's been really nice. That's funny that you guys know McElroy as well. We actually went to high school together, so <laughs> we both returned to our hometown. Um no, it's been really great. It was definitely intimidating when I first started out because even though I felt like I was fairly well-versed in provincial politics, I didn't really know much about what went on in the house and I hadn't lived in Victoria in more than 10 years. Um, but everybody has been really great, really welcoming. The press gallery is quite warm. Um, you know, there's there's some friendly competition for scoops and stuff like that on on insider stories and, you know, being able to sort of cultivate sources uh, that nobody else has access to. But for the most part, it's quite collegial. Um, people are willing to help each other out and we spend a lot of time, you know, talking to each other about what's going on in a given day. Um, so even if it was a bit intimidating at first to be standing like right beside, say, Vaughn Palmer or Keith Baldry in a scrum, who are journalists who whose work I've been reading basically as long as I've been reading about politics, um, eventually it just kind of becomes part of the daily routine. So what is your daily routine? I imagine there are certain things that are kind of the same, but... For someone who doesn't really know what it's like to report on a legislature, let alone be a journalist, what's your day look like? 
Well, the house convenes at 10 a.m. on most days, so I try to be in there by 9.30 at the latest. Sometimes there are events that will take me in earlier. Sometimes I'll arrive a little earlier if there's something in particular I want to work on. But not being a morning person, I find 9.30 is a very civilized time to be showing up for work. Um, so... Yeah, if the house is sitting at 10 a.m., often what happens is everybody will come down from the press gallery. Actually, there are two, but I live in the upstairs press gallery, so that's what I'll be referring to. Um, and we go down for what's called the caucus walk. So typically the government caucus, the NDP caucus, meets before each session during the day. So sometimes they'll have a meeting before the morning session and then another one before the session that happens in the afternoon. And what happens is members of the press gallery will go and hang out in the hallway between the government, um, the, the rooms in which they hold their caucus meetings and the legislative chamber. And that's sort of our opportunity to approach whatever minister we want to ask about whatever topic is on our mind, um, and get an answer for them to sort of start the day with. So that typically starts at around 9.40, 9.45, because MLAs are supposed to be in the chamber for 10 o'clock, so the session can start. Um, and then I'll head back upstairs and start looking at whatever releases the government has put out or what events I'm going to need to go to later in the day. I might make, might make a couple of phone calls um, if I'm, you know, need to query ministry staff about something. Um, my favorite part of the day is often question period. Um, I really think that anybody who has any interest in BC politics, and maybe especially the people who don't, should watch question period because it's typically the most entertaining part of the day. Um, Two days of the week, question period is in the morning, and two days a week, it's in the afternoon. Um, so the one thing that I do keep an eye on during each session is things like the introduction of bills, whether those are private members' bills or it's the government putting bills forward. Um, I also look for reports that are being submitted to the government or petitions that are brought in by particular MLAs. On Monday mornings, they do private members business, which can be a goldmine for interesting information. So far, my favorite quote, I think, from the entire legislative session is MLA Greg Kylo, who represents Shushwap, saying that trying to talk to the NDP about tax competitiveness is like trying to explain thunder to goats. And that came out of a Monday morning private members um, session. So the morning session typically ends by noon. And then there's a break of about an hour and a half. If something really interesting happens in the chamber where the government introduces legislation, they'll often show up at what's called the blue curtain, which is kind of like a little stage close to the chamber um, that will allow uh, the press gallery, including all of the camera guys who are shooting for the various TV outlets, um, to set up and then we'll ask them questions about, say, the intent of the legislation or, you know, concerns expressed by the opposition and things like that. Um, MLAs go back into the House at 1.30 in the afternoon. Um, and again, I'm then watching out for what's happening with various pieces of legislation, whether they're debating them, is it being sent to committee, is it going to be passed into law? Um, and yeah, in the afternoon, I often spend a lot of time transcribing audio and, and just writing things up. Um, but things 
you know, releases and announcements do come in throughout the afternoon. So this afternoon in particular was very heavy. <laughs> we had multiple announcements and then Alberta's throne speech came through and Rachel Notley had some very interesting things to say. And so we got a reaction from Environment Minister George Heyman and... Um, yeah, so I'm just I'm kind of paying close attention to what happens in the chamber while also trying to analyze and synthesize all of the rest of the stuff that's going on with government. Um, yeah, and I do that Monday through Thursday. I'm not in the House on Friday. The gov- they don't have any sessions on Friday. The government doesn't sit. And often what happens is MLAs and the Premier will be out and about in the province making different announcements. Um, I actually start writing our Monday edition is done on Sunday. So I'll start writing from home on Sunday. And that's a very different day. I'm often doing a bit more digging to sort of find the content for Monday morning or reviewing what happened the week before and, you know, trying to make sort of an educated guess about what the government is likely to do in the following week. Do you have any favorite stories from your uh, first few months in Victoria? favorite stories in terms of like well anything that maybe didn't make the newsletter or you know those like that anecdote about the goats but or maybe just <laughs> so like it wasn't the newsletter that one. it was that a, one it was, was definitely a but... quote of the day i mean there wasn't much to cover there because it was just kylo being sassy but um <laughs> You know, it's been it's been really interesting to be able to sit down with the leaders of various political parties, um, which we get to do at sort of regular intervals. For instance, everybody gives us interviews at Christmas. So I was in the premier's office. Um, Premier Horgan, by the way, is a diehard Star Trek fan, which I learned because he had a Star Trek mug on his uh, on his desk when I went in there. Um, Him and Jack Layton. Yeah, it it seems to be almost an NDP thing. Like there, something about well, there, enjoying the party that, means you also enjoy it's Star that Trek. Socialist I don't feature. know. <laughs> Although there is that really awkward picture of Andrew Shear in a Star Trek. Well, I, it's oh, just no picture of Andrew Shear. He's always awkward in them, but um, he is definitely dressed up as a Star Trek character on at least one occasion. <laughs> well, maybe there's something about politics. I just it made me laugh. Um, just getting to see sort of behind the curtain a little bit. Um, you know, I, I spoke with our local politicians when I was in Prince George on a fairly regular basis. It's um, They're both liberal MLAs up there, Shirley Bond and Mike Morris. Um, but it's kind of different when you're in the house and you can see the way they interact with each other. I was actually following debate on the budget bill today, and it was... It's International Women's Day, and it was just really sort of inspiring and impressive to me to watch Finance Minister Carol James kind of taking questions from two very accomplished female liberal MLAs. That would be the two finance critics who are Shirley Bond and Tracy Reddy's. And they're talking about very technical issues and very sort of specific applications Um, And the discussion is completely being led by women, which even 20 years ago, 30 years ago in BC, wasn't really a thing. Um, The Hall of Honor in in the BC legislature actually has a display right now with all of the female MLAs who have ever served in BC. Um, And I don't think it's even two dozen and most of them are actually currently serving in the House. So I find it I just find it very inspiring to watch sort of 
obviously incredibly intelligent, sort of high-powered women um, doing their thing in the chamber. Is there anyone else you think has a really great sense of humor or you really get along with when you're questioning? Like, how is Andrew Weaver when you sat down with him and those kind of stories? <laughs> Without getting into too much gossip, obviously. Andrew Weaver is a very interesting man. He was, he was <laughs> the first leader to grant me a face-to-face one-on-one interview. Uh, when I first started and nobody knew who I was or what BC Today was. Um, so I, you know, I'm appreciative of that. Uh, and he's very, I guess he's what you might call, depending on depending on your approach, he's either a very easy or a very difficult interview. Um, the Green Party leader really likes to talk. Um, so if you ask <laughs> him a question and you just let him do his thing, he will give you his thoughts on the matter in depth. Um, and he's always he's always very warm. That can also be difficult, though, if you are trying to sort of keep him focused or get through a lot of material in a fairly short period of time. And I think in the first interview I booked with him, we booked half an hour and I was there for like an hour. And it's a lot to go back. You know, I was I was taking notes during that time, but it's still a lot to have to go back through the audio and sort of double check, you know, exactly what he said and stuff like that. Um I would say I'm still, I, I think a lot of the MLA, you know, like a lot of people now know who I am. Um, I tend to have brightly colored hair. So a lot of people don't actually seem to know what my name is, but they know who the reporter with the hair is. Um, <laughs> so that kind of makes it easy. Um, I've been quite impressed by, uh, again, two more female MLAs and sort of junior MLAs at that. Um, the NDP's Bo and Ma has been quite active. Um, I follow her on Twitter, but also just in speaking to motions in the House and in the debates that go on around bills. Um, for for a rookie MLA, I, I find her quite composed. Um, she doesn't tend to get flustered about things, and she's obviously very passionate about the people she represents and what she does and, and the issues that she's that she's going to bat over. Uh, the Green Party uh, House leader, Sonia Furstenau, is another one who I often find myself noticing. You know, I'll, I'll have the audio on for what's going on in the chamber, and then something will catch my attention. It's often Furstenau speaking to that. Again, a lot of passion there. She clearly believes in you know, what, what she is doing and trying to do the best for the people she is representing, which is, I think, sort of the best you can hope for in politics. Um, are there any stories that haven't got the attention that you think they really deserve? Oh, man, that's a hard one, because there's, there's so much going on. Um, and it's hard, it's hard to kind of take it, take it all into account. I mean, one of the things I think we're still really waiting on, and, and nobody has said much about lately is what's going to happen around cannabis legalization here in BC. Um, the government has laid out several planks for the way it plans to deal with legalization, but we haven't gotten the nuts and bolts in the form of legislation yet. So they've said that they're planning to allow landlords and strata owners to place restrictions on tenants who want to exercise the right provided in the in the federal legislation to grow their own recreational cannabis, but they haven't said what those restrictions are going to be, um, which I think some people are, are anticipating. We don't have price points yet. That's coming from the federal government, but it's, the, it's been this huge issue where 
you know, the government has in some ways basically admitted that BC is a little behind, more so last session than this one, because we had the election and then government fell and then the new government wasn't formed until sort of July. So they haven't had a lot of time to deal with it. It's going to be a really technical issue. One of the stories that I have just consistently had my mind blown on, and actually the Attorney General has pretty much said the same thing, is reporting that's been going on, um, that Post Media is doing about money laundering in BC casinos and how that might be related to what's going on in BC real estate and also potential connections to the drug trade. Um, It sounds like it's right out of... I don't know, almost a mafia movie or something like that. People showing up with like hockey bags full of cash at casinos and laundering it by, you know, giving it to the casino, getting a bunch of chips, playing a few hands of poker and then getting all their money back. And it's been cleaned um, that way. Uh, So I I find that really impressive. And that's something, again, that the attorney general says he's looking into and that we should expect legislation on at some point. Whether that happens this session, I don't know. Um, I asked the premier last week because there had been a bunch of discussion about how much legislation and how many issues the government was going to have to deal with um, in its legislative agenda this session. And then we've seen very few bills introduced so far, Um, fewer than there were in the same time period during the last session and nothing sort of of, um, you know, nothing on the scale of, say, uh, the bill that removed uh, the ability of corporations and unions to donate to political parties or the one that sets the stage for the electoral reform referendum that we're going to have sometime this fall. Um, so I asked Premier Horgan, um, you know, if his government is planning to introduce a bunch of bills soon or whether it's all going to get done at the uh, at the end of the session. Um, and he basically just told me that things are proceeding as normal and... You know, it's it's normal for the government to focus on the throne speech and the budget bill at the beginning of the session. But, you know, they've said they they need to deal with cannabis. They, they're they probably going to have to do something with ICBC. There's going to be legislative changes involved in the way that they plan to try and fix that Crown Corporation. Um you know, they're looking at strengthening environmental laws. Um, so there's a lot that they still have to do. And I feel like we're kind of in a holding pattern at the moment, just waiting for these bills to come up. Well, I think that's a good point to switch on to what the topics of this week have been. The liberals, it seems, have been really focused on the speculation tax and the health payroll tax, especially, and how that affects school boards and, you know, nonprofits and literally everyone they can think of. Uh, Do you think the criticisms they're making in question period and in the media are landing? Are they shaking the NDP at all? Or are they sort of sticking to their talking points? Well, in question period, the government, who is typically represented by Finance Minister Carol James these days in question period, she took every single question I think it was yesterday and all except one or two today. Horgan stepped in and um, the Greens asked our Children and Family Development Minister about um, Indigenous children in care. 
I think one of the things that the liberals sort of have on their side or that they've been making hay with recently is that there are a lot of people in BC who say own a vacation home uh, or have a family cabin somewhere where the speculation tax is going to be applied and they're worried about what that's going to mean for them and for the taxes that they have to pay on that property. So they've been expressing their concerns. I'm sure that NDP MLAs are getting them as well, but the Liberals have been contacted by various constituents and are bringing those concerns forward in question period. So I do think there's anxiety out there um, in the public. The same thing when it comes to nonprofit organizations, health authorities, universities and colleges who are worried about what's going to happen with the payroll tax. Um the liberals are being contacted or say they're being contacted by these um, these organizations who have concerns about what the government is doing. And the government hasn't really released a lot of those details yet. Now, Finance Minister Carol James says that the reason they haven't released a lot of details around these taxes is because they're still dealing with the intricacies of what it's going to mean to implement them and they want to take the time to really hash out the details and get it all right before they put those details before the public. What the liberals are saying is that the NDP doesn't know what they're doing and they're flying by the seat of their pants on these policies um, and are causing a lot of anxiety and angst for British Columbians who are waiting to see what the government is going to do. And Honestly, I can see sort of both sides. Um, in, in one of the editions this week, I sort of dealt with the question of why the government would introduce the speculation tax in the budget with so few details, knowing that it was likely to be something that was, you know, of interest both to the average British Columbian and to other Canadians who own properties here because they're likely to get hit with that tax. Um, but the finance minister said, you know, our... This was the first budget for the NDP, the first full budget. And one of the things that they promised to do is to try and crack down on speculation in the province. And so having the tax in the budget is supposed to be a way of sort of signaling that, yes, they are serious about tackling this issue. And yes, they are going to take some concrete steps to do so. Now they're sort of asking for some time and some patience on the part of British Columbians while they figure out the details. James says they have a lot of time to do that. Property tax notices um, won't be going out. I believe it's until the fall. So they plan to have everything hashed out by then. But, you know, in the meantime, there's a lot of people wondering if uh, if they're going to be hit with a much higher tax bill um, from the speculation tax, whereas, you know, business owners and um, non the nonprofit sector and the public sector are wondering how they're going to deal with this payroll tax when it comes up. Um, so there there is quite a bit of uncertainty, and it's it's interesting to watch. Um, it's interesting to watch the two parties approach the issue. I was really struck this week by sort of the difference in the way the finance minister talked about housing in British Columbia as opposed to the way that Liberal leader Andrew Wilkinson did. The finance minister came out and said, we don't want people treating real estate in British Columbia like a stock market. It's not good for affordability. You know, it's not good for the average British Columbian trying to find a home, a place to live. Whereas Wilkinson came out and was expressing concern 
for individual investors who might be considering purchasing a property in British Columbia, and also saying that the NDP is trying to chip away at the equity um, people have in their homes, which he described as an asset. So on the one hand, you have the government finance minister saying, you know, British Columbia is not open for investment when it comes to individual properties and real estate. And you have the liberal leader saying that the NDP is trying to essentially rob people of the assets that they have in housing, which I think kind of speaks to the crux of how complicated that issue is. And it's also one that has a generational divide in it, too. So it's going to be a hot topic for a long time to come because I don't think there's any quick and easy fix to the situation we find ourselves in. Uh, is there any debate you're particularly looking forward to uh, in this coming session? That will kind of depend on the legislation. So far, I I always enjoy the budget debates because they're a bit open-ended. They allow MLAs to sort of address whatever issue they either support or take issue with. There's often a lot of sort of um, either backhanded compliments or sort of more subtle jabs at, in the case of the NDP, the liberal legacy. They have their refrain of 16 years uh, of liberal governments and, and what that's done to the province. Um, in the case of the liberals, they're often talking about, you know, the tax and spend NDP and a lack of fiscal responsibility on the part of the government. Um, actually, going going back to Green Party leader Andrew Weaver, it's always interesting to watch him in the House because he's always very animated um, in his debates. He actually had a very intense response. I think it was during the debate on the supply bill that happened today, um, sort of railing against the government taxes and saying that, you know, they appear to be poorly thought out. And he will be supporting the Budget Measures Act, which is what will help to fund the public sector um, through the next year, but taking the time to also, you know, signal to the NDP that he takes issue with several of the things that they have done so far this session. Um, I would really like to see uh, Liberal MLA Michelle Stilwell's um, private members bill about pay equity get some discussion, but Private members' bills are typically simply left to die on the order paper. They're introduced, um, and and that's usually as far as they go. So I don't have high hopes there, but Ontario having introduced an act um, sort of dealing with pay transparency with the aim of forcing companies to disclose what they pay their workers so that sort of hidden inequities aren't possible anymore Um I was excited to see that, and I would like to see BC do something along the same lines. Unfortunately, querying the premier on that, um, I got kind of a non-answer about everybody deserving fair, pay, equal pay for equal work sort of thing. So I don't, I don't think we'll see anything like that this session. Well, I think we've covered quite a bit in this section, so maybe we'll just close it off, but we'll keep you around for our quick takes to get your random thoughts on our random little stories. Sure, sounds but good. But before, before we do that, maybe just give people a quick plug of where they can find you on Twitter, how they can subscribe to the newsletter and those kind of things. Sure. Um, I am at BC Today Official 
on Twitter. That's where everything that's related to the newsletter goes through. Um, if anybody is interested in maybe more of my personal takes on given issues and some sassier responses to uh, the policy and politics in BC, you can find me at so bitter so sweet as well. If you're interested in our newsletter, um, you can actually sign up for a free two week trial. You'll get 10 editions at absolutely no cost. Um, and you can visit our website, which is British Columbia today. Day.ca to find that information. Great. Moving into our quick takes, the first story I want to get into is this story out of Burns Lake about the former mayor up there, Luke Strimbold. He was recently charged with, well, he was actually charged a month ago on February 3rd with 24 counts of sex related crimes, including with people under the age of 16. And since he resigned as mayor in 2016 has been various levels of BC liberal party apparatus. And interestingly, he was the youngest mayor in BC's history at 21 when he was elected in 2011. But now we just have this, not just sort of allegations in the news, but uh, charges coming forward. Did he come up when you were in Prince George? Because Burns Lake isn't too far from there, at least relative to here. We had stations across um, sort of north central BC. I've interviewed Strimbold previously. Um, so I, f- I find this story really disturbing. I remember it being everybody was very confused when he resigned very suddenly in 2016, but there was no. No discussion, no su- suspicion about anything like this at that point in time. Um, and he was, he was very, he was very well liked. He was kind of this, you know, up and coming political star. Like you said, the youngest mayor ever elected in the province's history. He started serving at the age of 21. And there's been like the allegations broke on, or the fact that he had been charged came to light on Friday afternoon, last Friday afternoon. And I looked, I read the story in the Taiyi, and it said that he had been charged on February 3rd, which was a month beforehand. And I think there's been a lot of concern around the fact that the RCMP didn't feel that they needed to notify the public in any way about Strimbold's charges, but also the fact that he'd been conditionally released and what conditions had been imposed upon that release. So Public Safety Minister Mike Farnworth actually responded to some of those concerns today when confronted by reporters and acknowledged that, yes, something probably needs to change or be done to ensure that a situation like this doesn't arise in the future. Of course, with a case that's going to go before the courts, He's not going to step in and do anything immediately, but he did say that his ministry will be looking into whether there are, you know, some legislative or policy tweaks that need to happen that can balance sort of the RCMP being able to investigate and do their job, protect the rights of the accused, but also allow the public to be informed about, you know, potentially a threat in their midst. Yeah, it's also worth noting he was a member of the BC Liberal Executive up until the news broke, and they dumped that dumped him pretty quickly. I can't remember from the story whether he resigned or was resigned. It, it was probably mutual. Yeah, of like, his picture was off the website with 
in, I think, an hour. Yeah, my understanding is he was asked to step down, both as he was a member, um, I think he, he did... He was part of the membership committee. He'd also recently served on the rules committee during the leadership race. Um, Ironically, he was charged on the day that the liberals held their leadership convention. And yeah, he was asked to resign both from the party's executive and as a party member once the, the charges against him became public. At the same time, though, the party claims to have had no knowledge about any of this um, until media made the charges public on Friday. So yeah, it seems a little weird to me. I'm not suggesting any foul play in the Liberal Party or anything attempt to cover it up. But it's with 24 counts, and this sort of coming to light. And like you're describing, it was very popular in the area. When Patrick Brown, for example, the allegations came out against him, it was like the secret everyone knew. Everyone's like, Oh, yeah, we all knew about that. Everyone jumped ship right away. But this has a sort of different feel of, like, did anyone really know? Were there whispers? I Yeah, I think the difference here is that everything that I've seen, all of the reporting that I've seen around it, and uh, the CBC actually did a piece where they spoke to members of the Burns Lake community about the charges and how they felt on the issue. And it seems like everybody is completely taken aback. So... I would, my impression is that this is very different from a lot of, you know, sort of the Me Too incidents and what happened with progressive conservative leader Patrick Brown, in that this does seem to be a case where people didn't know and they didn't suspect and there wasn't necessarily an open secret that just hadn't been dealt with. Uh, So moving on, Jasper Atwell is continuing to be in the news we didn't really talk about this over the last couple weeks but it's been kind of dominating the national headlines where this individual who happened to be convicted of attempted assassination got invited to an event the pm was at in india though in india and it's worth noting that that attempted assassination was against an indian minister so that's bad on multiple levels So the news today was Atwal was at a press conference that he held where he read a statement and his lawyer took some questions but really tried to shut the media down from asking any other questions. And he just tried to distance himself, I guess, from the controversy. I read some of it and I was just, it was a messy day and nothing really came good of it. The like attempts to keep the media from asking questions went over poorly for some reason (laughs) well when you invite reporters to an event and then you ridicule them and do everything except point and yell fake news when they try to ask you a question (laughs) on the topic of your press event yes you're gonna piss reporters off (laughs) like what they should have done i think is just put together a video or a statement and send it out to all the news organizations and like don't waste reporters time and have them come out and show up and then you know not take their questions when you called them in you know you asked them to be there our job is to ask questions it's always to ask questions if you don't want us to ask questions don't hold events with reporters so i can buy into atwal's story of 
he's redeemed himself, he's moved on from his Sikh separatist ways, and he wants to, and he's, you know, made peace with the Indian government. But what I don't get is how he's still getting ins with all of these politicians. Like, for any average Canadian to get an invite to a prime minister gathering, to be pictured with random MP, like, he comes up so frequently, it just boggles my mind. Like, he has some talent, I think, for just appearing. Because it was during the BC election, even, where he was pictured with one, was it a liberal MLA, randomly? Yeah, I think that was our citizens' services minister, Ginny Sims. I can't remember, because this did come up in the last session. It was it was a topic in question period. And I think there may even have been an event that the premier appeared at. I don't know if, if right. Atwell was there, or there was, you know, kind of another shady character the government has argued, and I don't know if the feds really tried this, but certainly here in BC, the argument was, you know, we can't vet every single guest on the list. Some of these fundraisers are huge and there's tons of people and multiple people are adding names to the guest list and stuff like that. So the logistics are complicated, but I just, you know, and some people have made the argument he was convicted, he served his time, you know, time to move on, but... I'm just not sure that a conviction for, like, attempted assassination is something... You know, you serve your time, you can move on in, like, your private life, but I'm not sure that then, you know, the the federal government is going to want you as kind of any sort of representative of the country at any sort of formal event. And we're not talking a minor crime here. This wasn't vandalism when he was a teenager. This was terrorist-type activities which he says he renounces now but yeah that's what i get from your point right is why would politicians want to be seen with him i don't know and it it becomes a really complicated issue because of the politics within india and and the the sikh community's relationship to India, which is a very large and 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 typically dominant Hindu um, contingent, but the thing that also struck me is former NDP Premier Ujjal Dosanjh had spoken out about what happened um, with Atwal, and sort of reminded everybody that Atwal was charged with assaulting Ujjal Dosanjh with some kind of weapon, I think it was an iron bar or whatever, in a parking garage. And Dosange was actually hospitalized due to the injuries. The charges were eventually dropped. He never went to court. Um, but, you know, this this guy has behaved violently in other circumstances as well. And I guess, you know, if he says, I, I want to move on or I've moved on from these activities, from this way of thinking and from this way of conducting myself, sure, that's fine. But I think people, the Canadian public and even the government deserve to see him sort of put his money where his mouth is before they let him back in the door, you know, at swanky fundraisers or at international state dinners. Yeah, and that's the sort of thing you'd expect someone in the PMO would have caught on to. You would, but apparently not. (laughs) Well... Moving into our next story, this perpetual story in BC is always, what's the hidden influence? And over the last couple of years, we saw, you know, the big New York Times headline of the Wild West of Canadian politics with all the corporate money. 
But now Gary Mason has his piece in the Globe and Mail in the last couple of days talking about, I think it's the, sorry, I just had to pull it. It's talking about this organization, 350.org, and how it's connected through some pin board string way to some of the anti-Kinder Morgan groups here in BC. And this, of course, ties in the web the BC Liberals are trying to create of this event that George Heyman was at on Bowen Island a couple weeks ago, where he met with some environmentalists who also have connections to some of the more radical things. But it, for me personally, it all strikes as, yes, there is this flow of money, but there are still a lot of people here in BC. Like I've heard Dogwood criticized a lot, for example, for getting some money from Tides Foundation in the US when it was first founded. But Dogwood does have a database of like 300,000 plus humans who are in Canada. And there's some weird connections between one of the sources Mason cites, this Vivian Krauss, where she seems to just have it out for environmentalists and is sort of maybe behind some of the charities that the Harper government went after back in the day. It's an interesting issue because the NDP has been accused by the Liberals of having activist ministers, um, George Hayman being one. But, you know, and I, I can I can see the concern, you know, outside, money from outside of the country or resources of other kinds being funneled to groups who are trying to disrupt um you know, a federally approved project that is supposed to run through BC, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I don't see it as quite as much of a concern as foreign money, say, flowing into elections. Um, and the other thing that I found interesting, there's actually an NPR piece on this that I haven't had a chance to read yet, where Washington State's governor, Jay Inslee, doesn't want the Trans Mountain Pipeline to go ahead either, or at least has some reservations about the approval process that went into the project. Um, and so I, I guess the question kind of ends up being is, are we getting to a point or have we gotten to a point where there aren't really issues that are purely about one country? Um, the point that sort of um, the NPR article in the in the brief skim that I did of it seemed to be making is if there is a tanker spill um, off the coast of BC, Washington State is likely to be impacted as well. Um, whatever is spilled will likely wash up on their shores as well. So you can then make the argument that maybe they should have a say in a project like this. That becomes insanely complicated if they did. <laughs> and I mean, you know, approvals for resource projects are already very technical issues as they stand. I guess it just, to me, it takes away a little bit of the validity of the argument that we should be concerned that you know, activist groups are receiving money and support from outside of Canada because we already know that resource development projects are receiving money and support from outside of our national borders, and we don't have a problem with that. Now, the question then becomes, you know, do you support or do you oppose the Trans Mountain Pipeline? I think that informs a lot of how you view the people who are trying to stop it. Yeah, I think that's definitely the case where there's a bit of motivated reasoning on all sides when it comes to 
money helping people out with what they're uh, trying to get done. Yeah, it's I mean, I don't I don't know all the details. And I I haven't actually read Mason's piece at this point in time. Um, But you know, there is a lot of concern. and, And this is one of those this is one of those topics that is going to be sort of, I think, top of mind for British Columbians for a long time to come. This the Trans Mountain Pipeline and the question of whether, you know, BC and the government who says that they're going to use every tool in the toolbox to oppose it, whether they can actually stop it or whether, you know, the the parties who are interested and those include the federal government and the government of Alberta in getting it completed um, are, are going to have their way. And also how far, you know, individuals and groups who oppose the pipeline can go. Now, BC has a rich tradition of opposition and protest around resource development and exploitation. Um, Clackwatt Sound springs immediately to mind. And I was actually reporting on one of the protests on Burnaby Mountain a couple of years ago, where the strategy among the protesters was essentially to have so many people get arrested that the Burnaby RCMP or police, I can't remember which one they have, um, wouldn't be able to take any more people to jail because they simply wouldn't have enough room. Um, And you had everyone from teenagers to, I remember this one woman who, you know, talked about herself as a grandmother and she was doing this for her grandchildren or whatever. And then she walked across, you know, the line that the police had and officers took her into custody and walked her to another vehicle. And then took her to be booked and arrested. Um, And it was all fairly civilized, but there was definitely a level of resolve there that um, I wasn't previously aware of. And so I do think that the groups that oppose this are going to take it to the bitter end. And the current government has indicated that they're likely to do the same. I almost wonder if the Liberals attempt to frame NDP ministers as this activist and I've heard some of the Keith Baldry's and some of those use that framing very heavily as well could risk backfiring like after 16 years of BC Liberals the NDP base I can imagine wants to see activists well that that's the base the uh you know the the middle voter that was what swung the election. I'm not sure if they were looking for that. But I wonder if they are just tired of complacency. And that's not mean to, that's not to say they want, you know, the hyper activists, but a government that is active might be more preferable than one that sort of sits on its hands. And now maybe that's more applicable to the housing crisis and some of the other affordability questions. But it can come up with pipelines if that becomes a bigger issue for some of the people who live in Metro Vancouver versus votes the NDP aren't getting in the interior anymore. Yeah, you definitely see a concentration of orange on the electoral map when it comes to southern British Columbia and particularly urban areas. I think I think you're right in that there are a lot of people in the province who don't have a problem with, you know, ministers who maybe support a given point of view and um and particular agenda. Um, as long as they don't end up crossing any lines, you know, legally speaking, I'm, I'm not sure necessarily what, what the concern is there, but 
I think one of the other things that people forget is that like politicians are people. Um, yes, there are elected representatives. Yes, they are held to a higher standard in a lot of ways, but they are people. They have passions and beliefs and are drawn to certain causes in the same way that anybody else is. Um, and I do think that for a lot of them, what draws them to politics is the possibility of being able to you know, enable and promote those causes and try to get things done um, that will help them. So, I mean, I think if you really, if you wanted to take it broadly, you could argue that, you know, many politicians and virtually every minister that we've had who actively pursues their portfolio or their mandate um, is an activist minister. Now, I know that's not what the liberals mean when they say activist minister, but just for the sake of argument. Well, while we're on the uh, topic of pipelines, uh, let's switch gears slightly and talk about what's happening with Alberta. There's big news breaking today as the Alberta throne speech promised to cut off our supplies of oil and natural gas. That's only if we take the quote, extreme and illegal actions to stop the Kinder Morgan pipeline, which I imagine will be defined by Rachel Notley and the Alberta NDP as our poll numbers have gone down a little. <laughs> and we need to cause some trouble. The throne speech in Alberta references actions taken by the Peter Lougheed government in 1980 when they restricted the export of oil and gas by 15% to sort of penalize Pierre Elliott Trudeau, another Trudeau. Yeah, the, the, the famous let the eastern bastards freeze in the dark. Yeah, the National Energy Program was not popular in Alberta, and they swore it for another 38 years still, and counting. It's a big threat from Alberta. It could mean that gas prices go to 2 to $3 a liter in Vancouver, where they're $1.50 right now. Do we think they'll come through and do this, or is this just saber-rattling saber to build up her support before an election? Well, we got a reaction from Minister Heyman this afternoon. I have to say, I almost cried when I saw this story came in because it was about three o'clock or so, and I was still buried under a bunch of other government releases and transcribing audio, and then I knew that this was going to be something that had to be in the newsletter, so it made my day a little bit longer. But So we spoke with Minister Heyman afterwards. He seems to think Alberta is, is saber-rattling. Um, he said that throne speeches are targeted to a specific audience, that the government is, you know, often, I think what he was implying is that the government is often trying to sort of appeal to its base, um, or, you know, the majority of people in the province, um, to garner support throughout the session. Um, he stopped just short of calling... Notley's throne speech threat childish uh, and went ahead and said that BC is trying to be the adult in the room on the issue um, and basically invited Alberta if they continue to have a problem with BC's actions on the Trans Mountain pipeline um, to go to court which is what the government has decided to do with its reference question about the so-called fifth point of the consultation that they proposed in January, which was the one that set Rachel Notley off because it proposed potentially restricting 
increases in diluted bitumen shipments to BC, at least while the consultation was going on, or until we know more about how Dilbit behaves when it's spilled, which the federal government is also looking into because nobody really knows. (laughs) So Heyman, I would say, doesn't seem to be taking the threat particularly seriously, at least at this point in time. Because the BC government isn't talking about any extreme or illegal actions. They're talking about tools that are in the toolkit. And we, I think, all assume the government is only going to use legal tools. Is Or is there something BC might do that would trigger a reaction? Or are we just in unknown territory right now? I think a bit of unknown territory. Heyman did say today that they, they plan to use the legal tools. Um, I would kind of tend to agree that we are sort of in, in unknown territory in some ways, um, particularly because the government has been very consistent, mostly in the form of Premier John Horgan and Environment Minister George Heyman saying, we understand that this is a federally regulated project and that we can't sort of interfere with it. Um, and that jurisdiction over what flows through federally regulated pipelines belongs to the federal government. But they've also been very firm in their assertion that BC does have jurisdiction over the issues that it is exploring in this consultation with British Columbians, potentially including restrictions on Dilbit. So Alberta has said, no, you don't have this authority, you know, no way in hell, which Rachel Notley has said sort of multiple times, like BC, this would be an illegal action by BC. BC has no jurisdiction to do this. They're hurting Alberta. They're hurting Canada. And members of the government here in British Columbia come back and say, we do have this jurisdiction. We're going to take it to the courts because we're that confident that they're going to give us the green light. Or at least court will tie it up for a while and maybe Kendra Morgan will get bored and go somewhere else. Which is definitely... Which is not the not the official strategy, <laughs> No, right? that's not what the government is saying they're trying to do. You could interpret it that way, for sure. Uh, the company has been making a lot of noise lately about what the delays are costing them and how frustrating it is to have this project approved, but they still can't move on it. But, you know, the government just keeps saying we're looking out for the interests of British Columbia, the economy, the environment, the coastline, and we have no intention of, of backing away from that. Well, just one final story on our quick takes. While we're on, I guess, the subject of trade wars, Donald Trump, of course, we try not to mention him on the show because it's nice to sort of remind ourselves of what's happening locally. But he announced today tariffs on steel, uh, 25% on all imported steel and a 10% tariff on all imported aluminum as a way to, I don't even really know what his purpose is. He thinks there's too much Chinese metal coming in or something. He's just... Economically illiterate? Had too much Diet Coke today or something. He was angry. Anyway, the good news, I guess, is that these aren't being imposed on Canada and Mexico yet. Although the hint is if NAFTA goes bad, he'll slap all kinds of tariffs randomly. So this is fun. Yeah, it's like he doesn't even know about Smoot-Hawley. Well, and... From everything I've seen, this is going to quickly increase prices on everything from like cans of Cokes to 747s. And some of them will be trivial increases, but they're kind of shooting their foot to, 
I like I don't get the move. Well, th- this is exactly why protectionism trade wars is bad. Is because you know the number of people in the U.S. economy that use steel is much higher than the number of people who make it, and on net, it's a lot better to have cheaper steel. And there's a generally better welfare overall when you can get stuff cheaper. I guess we're at least sheltered here in BC that for the most part, we don't produce a lot of steel in this province as far as I know. There's quite a bit of aluminum production and smelting that goes on here in British Columbia. It's something... Yeah, it's a fairly big industry. Yeah, and Horgan visited. There's an aluminum, I guess, smelter or refinery. I'm not sure about the terminology. Um, up north, I believe it's near Kitimat. Yes, they, yeah, that, that's correct. That was just sort of updated and, you know, given all the modern bells and whistles. And um, yeah, so... It, it BC produces a lot more aluminum than it does steel. That's for sure. Um, but aluminum is a, is a significant export of ours. I think the other thing that I mean, both um, Premier John Horgan and Liberal leader Andrew Wilkinson stood up in the House to speak about the need to support the federal government in whatever measures it decided to take to deter the states from deciding to place these tariffs. Um, and, you know, with, with the understanding that there would be severe repercussions for, um, the industries here in British Columbia. Now, you know, I don't know that there's much that a provincial government can do about a federal trade issue. It kind of, it reminded me of softwood lumber where there was a lot of talk going on by the government about, you know, protecting BC's interests and standing up for BC's interests and, that's not really something that the provincial government gets to do, aside from sort of trying to, you know, lobby the federal government. And and Horgan did make a trade trip down to the states to um, talk to, I guess, potential allies and whatnot. Um, but I guess the thing that you just have to kind of take away from this is that doing business with the United States is not going to be a stress-free enterprise under this president. I mean, when it comes to softwood lumber, it hasn't really been a stress-free enterprise for a very long time. This, I think, is the third time we're having to negotiate and take the United States to international court over these tariffs. Um, but certainly under Donald Trump, you never you never know what's coming. And even the, you know, supposed sacred cows of, of like trade when it comes to international politics are no longer safe. Well, This has been fantastic to have you on the show. Yeah, great to talk to you guys. Yeah, any final parting words you want to add before we let you go for the evening? Um, I'd love to have something really pithy and slick to say, but my brain is just such mush after today that I don't don't have anything. (laughs) All right. Well, thank you. Awesome. Yeah, thanks for your time. I look forward to hearing the episode. And the only really good thing about the province of British Columbia is that it's right next to us. And finally, we're moving on to our best of BC Polly. And first up is former guest of the show, Justin McElroy. And a great Twitter thread of his involving a bracketing of all of the NDP's consultations. So this starts off with a screen cap he posts saying, They laugh, but I'm actually sketching out a bracket of NDP consultations. This is a cry for help. And it's a conversation he screencapped between Manusha Janakiram, CBC on the coast, and Rob Shaw, where 
they were talking about the number of consultations and Rob Shaw says, this sounds like the kind of list making and counting I'm going to defer to Justin McElroy on. And Minutia says he'd need to create a bracket. So he follows up that tweet very shortly with, this is an all caps tweet. Big news, folks. The NDP has actually launched 32 public consultations since they've taken power. That's a perfect amount for a bracket game. Someone please find me and take my computer <laughs> away before it's too late. And then he moves into... So the 32 public consultations the NDP have launched can be put into four broad categories. I've moved a couple around to make it groups of eight in the less two groups. Here they are. And he's got a screen cap of all the different consultations grouped by category. And finally, he goes, the important asterisk question is, what are we measuring? The most essential public consultation? Least essential? Issues that will have the biggest impact? I'm not sure. What I do know is that I've made a possible bracket for literally the wonkiest competition imaginable, <laughs> and there it is. Everything from NAFTA renegotiations to electoral reform to Douglas fur protection. It really does cover the gamut. So maybe we'll have Justin on to talk through his new wonky bracket if he actually puts this into a similar thing as the canadian tv bracket that we had him on for last time yeah it's just a new heritage minute came out today so we need to know where that sits in the ranking the other tweet we saw this week was from other friend of the show at it's ryan clayton we swear we're not just biased we just try to be friends with everyone on although BC if you do come on the podcast it doesn't hurt your chances of having your tweet read ryan tweeted this afternoon ndp we're forming committees to study dozens of things you study too much. Take action. NDP. Okay, here's a bunch of new taxes to deal with affordability. No, you need to think things through. Welcome to government, NDP. Hashtag BC Poly. Make sure to nominate tweets for next week's show. Use the hashtag, hashtag best of BC Poly. And that has been Politoast. Find links to the stories we mentioned in the show notes at politoast.ca. Make sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Pod. Leave us a review and let us know what you think. Support the show and get early access to our interviews at patreon.com slash And if you have ideas for the show, feel free to send them to us. Thanks for listening.